you wanted more live Nerdist Writers panels. You've got more live Nerdist Writers panels. We've got a bunch coming up in September and October and in August. Uh, here they are, Los Angeles, August 23rd at Meltdown with Mark Guggenheim, the co-creator of Arrow and the upcoming Legends of Tomorrow, as well as a comic book writer, and he's done a ton of cool stuff. Corinne Marshall, the creator of Casey Undercover and a uh, great sitcom writer. Evan Blyweiss, who has written on... He started out on The Shield, um, uh, and he's done a bunch of other cool shows. Laura Valdivia, who currently write, wrote on Weird Loners, and she wrote on Ben and Kate, and uh, is very funny. Of course, it benefits 826LA. That's August 23rd. Also in Los Angeles, September 13th at Meltdown, our old pal Damon Lindelof is back, the co-creator of Lost and the showrunner of The Leftovers. We'll talk about that show and anything you want to talk about. We've also got Andrew Kreisberg, the co-creator of Supergirl, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow. Um, great guy. Uh, Noel Valdivia, uh, the sister of Laura, who writes dramas. She's currently on Manhattan and wrote for Masters of Sex. And finally, Kit Boss, who's written for Bob's Burgers. Uh, he's on iZombie now. Really good guy. That's September 13th at Meltdown. August 31st, let's back it up. August 31st at Brookline Booksmith, I'm talking with Joe Hill, author, short story writer, comic book writer, raconteur, hilarious dude, scary dude, maybe. Let's find out. Benefits 826 Boston. That's on August 31st, my old hometown. And then finally, this big one, September 21st at Largo at the Coronet, uh, we're doing an evening of the masters of the family sitcom. We've got Norman Lear, the creator of All in the Family, the Jeffersons, a million shows. Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, and Steve Levitan, the co-creator of Modern Family. It should be a terrific conversation with these three guys. All three are funny, charming, have lots to say, have been in the business for years. Uh, you don't want to miss that. That's September 21st at Largo. But Ben, where do I get tickets for these things and how do I support 826LA and 826Boston? I'll tell you. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. I started a Tumblr so you can find out about all of this stuff. writerspanel.tumblr.com. Follow it, and you'll find out about this. And we're adding, there are going to be two more live panels uh, in, that will come up for sale in the next couple of weeks. So come check it out. Please come to these panels. Uh, I always enjoy doing them. I enjoy meeting all of you who listen to the show. And uh, we want you there to ask questions. That's what I miss having done all of these studio panels is you guys asking great questions of uh, the creators. So come on out, writerspanel.tumblr.com. Or, and follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, uh, for details there. Hope to see you soon. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at the ATX Television Festival in Austin. Uh, season 4, which was this year, first weekend in June 2015. We had so much fun at ATX this year. It was bigger and better than it ever was. I don't know why you're not coming next year. Go to ATX festival.com and get your badge for next year. Don't wait to find out who's going to be there because if you wait to find out who's going to be there, you're going to miss an opportunity to get your badge. Go to atxfestival.com. your moderator, Andy Langer, along with Fred Golan, Dave Andron, John Avnet, Graham Yost, and Nick Searcy. Oh, you can say it now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Be okay with All right, I know. I'm, 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 I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. It's okay, man. Nice room. You're going to be fine, man. 
Could you just stand there and hold it? Okay. Apparently, I get to say roll video. And then video rolls. <laughs> Presumably. What's it like holding someone's fate in your hands? Raylan, that girl can make a dog break its chain. Yes, she is pretty. I hope you know what you're doing. I do too. You know where my money is. Think you can get to it. I'm gonna rob him. And then I'm gonna stick a bullet in your boyfriend's head. He said Lloyd would hit the cash. He's too smart. Get your ass back to Lexington. Bullshit. I like Ava. He's ashamed to have to kill her. Your card in fate's right hand. Don't you see how it's going to play out? You say that like we ain't already dead. Welcome to the United States of America, Chief. Around these parts, this door means something. You come out from behind that pussy badge and I show you. Sit your ass down. Or you want to reconsider your earlier position. I'll be good now. You will obtain and relay information that may lead to charges against Boyd Crowder. If you don't bring us something relevant and tangible within the week, you'll be remanded back to prison. We're a car short. That ain't our only problem. In front of the guy falling us. Mm-hmm. You want to flapjack him? You want to short bus him? You want a special attention him? Any of those even things? I'm mostly just making shit up. God damn. You comfortable in this car, man? Your size? It's a little tight. Yeah. Son, are you real smart or real stupid? Choo-choo. Keep disrespecting me. You're going to ride the train. I said a starter tap. You want to slap like a little girl? You do it. <laughs> All right, you ask me, you get Amtrak. You got a badge and a set of balls, don't you? Hell yeah, I got a badge. And I got balls like Death Stars. I think I finally found a way to get out that money. You remember what I told you last time I seen you? Wonderful things can happen when you sow seeds of distrust in a garden of assholes. You just come up with that? I read it somewhere. I told you, assholes, to leave your cell phones in the car. something that makes you not trust her i think she tried to run yesterday if i were to come into a good song would you come away with me how much money are you coming into a whole lot of money we got the money i'll have you everything else i can replace i ain't my brother no but you are a crowd aren't you Friend, boy. Yeah, I'm your friend. I know for a woman to survive in this line of work, she's got to be harder than the men, ready to do the things they want. I know women who have that in them. My question is, are you that kind of woman? I thought I'd seen all your tricks. a hell of a time for take your daughter to work day. You're older. Did you ask him if he wanted to hold her? No, because he is not a nurturing, caring human being. He's kind of an asshole. Can I, can I hold him? No. This guy going all Eric Crane on us, hold up at some derelict airport for weeks while we're out here chasing our own dicks. Sounds really strange when you say that. I'm running shit. I get to use the expression. Roger that. You have no trouble finding me. You have no idea. You got eggs inside. I can teach you a thing or two about omelets. We'll talk after you've eaten. Try to change your lives, and you call me a peacock. A goddamn peacock. Walker, stop! Are so full of shit. Oh, so you don't want it? Why 
my goodness. Well, hold on now. What's the catch? You've got to be joking me. I ain't backing down. I'm going to rob him. You know where my money is. Think you can get to it. You ever been down the mine? I've been to Mordor, but not through the mines. Uh, yes or no? No. And what say we do a deep set of drills in the foundation, do two charges simultaneously? Oh, no, 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 it's too risky. What's risky is not getting that goddamn money. He will be buried by your own goddamn greed, just like you deserve. I want a choo choo to be here so bad. So, looking at that, it's clear. I mean, it's always been clear that this is partially a comedy. But when you put it together like that, I mean, there were more, more laughs than the average hour drama mighta, coulda, shoulda had, right? Yeah, and, um, Elmore Leonard was a very funny writer, but the, and we always hoped that we would do a funny show, but it's interesting. We'll, we'll laugh when we read things on the page to ourselves, maybe a laugh a little bit while we're shooting it, sometimes in editing, but rarely do you get to see television with an audience. And so it's always fun. It's like, wow, that line actually worked, you know? <laughs> well, we can get this out of the way right now. You were talking in the green room about how you pictured something in a movie theater that yeah. you wrote, and uh, it involves Nick here. Tell that story. <laughs> you the story of uh, well, the running. The, oh, yeah. Oh, well. Well, I'll start it. Okay. Um, so there was before season two, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and Nick came. We, the actors would come to the writer's room uh, usually sometime in August, and, and t- we would talk about what we were thinking for the year. And uh, we, we told Nick that Art was going to get that incredible episode where he beats the hell out of Frank John Hughes. Um, so that was going to happen, right? That was in the second season, wasn't that it? That was three. Nah, it's all a blur. Anyway... <laughs> So, but it, it, you had what? You came in and you said what? Well, to the I had rest? a knee operation that year. I said, just don't make me run. I, said, I don't, I don't want to do any running this year. So the second he left the room, we said we're going to make him run. <laughs> so that's where I came in. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> the character that was the bad guy was the guy who had the oxygen on the. Emphysema. Yeah, the little him. wheelie right. thing. And this was Played someone by Scott that Nick, Wilson. Yeah, and Nick was chasing him for for a long time, so it was like a very personal thing. <laughs> so anyway, we got out at Aquadolce, which is an airport out in, uh, on the way towards Palmdale. And I went, oh, it's kind of interesting, you know, two gimpy guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? How are we going to do the chase here? And I thought, we're going to do a slow speed chase. <laughs> so we, we had Nick wired up there. Did you have a cane? Or, no, I didn't uh, have a cane, but I had to pick up his oxygen tank. Right, right. Because yeah, I told it. him I was going to blow up the oxygen tank and right. ran. So he left it behind, so I'm dragging <laughs> the oxygen tank. With, with his gun in his hand, and he's limping on the bad knee. And uh, anyway, it was it became well known within the writers' room. I think as a slow speed the chase. slow speed chase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and along and which I thought was really quite funny. And and what Graham says is a very big deal actually for directing and, and I think for writing too in television and particularly with Justified because it's so much of a tonal balance. You know, when I do a film, I put it in front of an audience. You laugh or you don't laugh. And if you don't laugh, I got a problem. And if you do laugh, good, and you move on to the next thing. We never get a response, you know, in a big room that has anything theatrical, except when, you know, we have a screening beginning of the year, end of the year. So it is one of those kind of odd things where you don't exactly know, 
you know, how an audience is reacting, and you're watching it alone or with family or however you're watching it. So it's a slightly different feeling, which I always refer to as the void. You know, you make it, and it goes into the void. So it is fun when you see this stuff and you say, oh. Yeah. And, and we, we can't help ourselves, so we're looking at each other. So Dave wrote the line where uh, <laughs> Gutterson is saying, so is that a, you want a short puzzle? You want a flapjack? You want a, is any of that real? No, I'm just making it up. And we always thought that was hilarious, but again, we've never seen it with an audience. <laughs> but I guess there is a tone that runs oh, yeah. through the show. And, I mean, great magazines have tones authors have a tone that works through a bunch of different books. I mean, there is a tone to justify. And so you know that season one, that kind of comedy works, and you're pretty safe betting they're going to laugh in the next season, right? I mean, because there's a tone. Yeah, and I, listen, I think, you know, if you see Out of Sight or you see Get Shorty or, or Jackie Brown, um, there's just stuff to laugh at. And, you know, uh, the, the actors we hired... Uh, we're all, you know, except for one exception, really good at comedy. <laughs> the same with the writers. <laughs> to take it back to the beginning for a minute, you did share with, I guess, the writers these What Would Elmore Do bracelets. And, well, you're wearing one. Yeah, I, I can't take it off. I don't know. It's, it doesn't... Anyway. How'd you do now that it's over? Um, I think we I think we did pretty well. I, I think that you know Elmore liked the show, and that was that was fantastic. Um, you know he was pretty clear. It was fun to talk to him about you know adaptations that he didn't like that had come up in conversation. He has a great he had a great story about seeing The Big Bounce, the first version with Ryan O'Neill, and being in a movie theater. Remember that he sits down behind a couple and. Th- Ten minutes in, the wife looks at the husband and goes, and they got up, and he got up and left with them. Um, And then he always said he thought he always called that the second worst movie ever made because there had to have been something worse. And then he saw the more recent version of The Big Bounce and said, that's it. So, um, but he, uh, so he was, uh, he liked the show. And it was, you know, we couldn't, obviously he had passed away, so we couldn't check in with him the last two seasons. But... um, you know, the closest we had was Greg Sutter, who was his researcher for 30 years and, and dear friend. And he, he felt that we stuck, stuck the ending and stuck the landing and that we ended it the way that Elmore might have, or at least that he would have been happy with it. I don't know if he would have ended it exactly that way. We can't tell. But, you know, overall, I think we were probably 70, 80 percent um, in the Elmore world. Was there trepidation early on because he didn't like so much of what had come from his books, and then you're working with a guy who might be a pain in the ass? No, because his, his whole thing of working with, with, with filmmakers was just to let them do what they're going to do. He never, he never gave notes, never weighed in. Um, but I, I think uh, two things. I think we, had, we felt right from the beginning we had a great cast, and Michael Dinner directed the pilot and did a great job. Um, and my adaptation of the novella was very, very faithful to the novella. So we felt that we were on pretty solid ground with him, except for the hat, right? He didn't like Raylan's hat. Uh, it took him, took him a while. And that was our final nod to him, uh, is that the hat that Raylan ends up wearing in the final run of the final episode um, is closer to what Elmore had envisioned for Raylan in the beginning. Yeah, but uh, I remember when you took him into the editing room on one of the early episodes, I think it was when we, uh, Raylan and Walt, when they were getting out of prison, and he was really complimentary, you know, and I had, I, I had none of the antecedents of the conversations leading up to it. He was really complimentary, and he literally said it was better than he imagined it, you know. So he yeah, and, he, your- and there was a scene between uh, Winona and, uh, and Ava that he, that he saw from the first season, saw in the editing room. He loved that. And then the other thing he said to us in the writer's room was about Boyd, and we kept this as almost like we could have put it on a card on a poster on the wall, which is... Um, I don't believe a word he says, but I love hearing him say it. Um, but honestly, a big part of, of if, if we came close to Elmore was because of we, we had the great cast, and then it was the writers. And the first person hired was Fred. And uh, Dave wasn't available the first season. He was working on Past Life. And, but he did two freelance for us. And um, Dave's first episode was really, turns out to be one of our favorite episodes of the whole run, which was Hatless, when Raylan is suspended for a few days and loses his hat in a bar fight and goes and helps 
Winona's ex, uh, new husband, Gary, out of a jam. And that's where we met. Well, we had met Win Duffy in the previous episode, but he was so big in that one. Five and a half, eight miles. Yeah, and, and so it was, that was, uh, you know, that was getting Dave, then getting Taylor Elmore. And Fred and I had met Dave and Taylor on, um, on a short-lived show called Reigns. And we were just, you know, because we were looking for people who could do the hard action and the hard crime stuff and all that high stakes stuff, but also be really funny. Oh, and then Ben. Ben was a, yeah, Ben was a first time on a show. Ben Cavell um, and Chris Provenzano had come off of Mad Men. And it's very uh, similar shows, Mad Men and Judge. No, sorry. (laughs) Nick, I think I saw you earlier when I was looking at some stuff earlier today, you said that you'd never worked on something where the writers were there with you the whole time, this involved, and that that's different. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the first season we were on set and we were changing so many lines that they decided we better get some writers down there. <laughs> but um, It was awful. <laughs> Absolutely awful. Uh, you know, we, we all had kind of ideas, and especially Tim, and, you know, and I always had a line or two I wanted to try out or whatever. So by about the sixth or seventh episode, they said, we, you know, we're, we're going to come down and help you rewrite our stuff you know <laughs> so but i think it really in a lot of ways i think it's kind of why the the dialogue had that sort of crackle to it is because you know we, everybody was there to make sure that the dialogue flowed the right way and if it didn't fit a character fit an actor that well you know they, you know they we were all in and on it together so you know but that's a chemistry thing i mean you've got to have not just chemistry with a cast, but a, as a production, if you're going to have writers hanging out, if, right? I mean, it, it well, has to be the right group of people it has to be for that right kind of scenario to work. And, and everyone has to agree that we're all headed in the same direction, which was Elmore. So everyone, you know, we were all sort of going, okay, that's, we know we were going to go in that direction. And listen, you know, I, I would do these postmortems with Mandy Beerley first at EW and then with Yahoo!, and invariably, she would ask me about a line. She said, and, you know, whose line was this? And I was like, oh, that was Nick's. You know, um, like there was, there was a line, and I think it was God, the pilot episode or something. We were railing, you, you know, if, you, if you're a kid in kindergarten, what was it? If, if, you, if, you, if, you bite, if you're in kindergarten and you bite somebody the first week, and then the next week you bite somebody else, pretty soon they're going to call you a biter. <laughs> it, it, the line really worked well in the show. Uh, it didn't... That, that, that's a bit of revenge. And it's not that different than the asshole line. <laughs> yeah. If you wake well, up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is that one of you that wrote that? The asshole. That, that was me. Asshole was me. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> well, and you need actors who, in the moment, can recognize. You know what the scene is doing, and as long as the fundamental, as long as the trajectory of the scene doesn't change, you can play with lines and little stuff all day. And but some actors like doing that, and some actors really don't. They get there, and you kind of say, "Do whatever you want to do something else," and they just kind of stare at you. But we were lucky to kind of have actors who, in the moment, for the most part, um, could step up and make it better. I, I think that's really crucial, and and, and start with Tim and with Walton, which is, the, it was demanding. The writing was demanding, and the performance was demanding on a tonal level alone, because you'll get into a situation, you know, where there's going to be a gunfight. It's the proverbial. There's a, you know, I'm, I got a gun, you got a gun, and it's going to happen. And then the entertainment is the playing with it, and that's the way it was written. And and the actors, I, I felt they really particularly our group, and I think we did quite well with hiring, too. I think the casting Cammy did and, and what was written was really good. But it was looking for a very specific kind of... Uh, it, it, it's a tonal exercise, and I think that's what, what, what Elmore is, and it's not easy to do. And when, you, when it works, you enjoy it. If it doesn't work, it just sinks like lead. Were there a set of rules? Oh, no, go ahead. I don't know if you're on. I don't think I'm Do you want to share Sure. Does it, are we on? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's it's true. The writers, the cast, and the directors all need to be, to get that tone and to be able to handle the drama as well as the comedy. And tonally, I think uh, it'd be nice to talk a little bit about go back to the beginning when we really had discussions in the early weeks of the show about um, you know what is what does it mean to be Elmore? What, what does it mean to try to write in Elmore's voice? And you actually gave us homework. 
Yeah, we uh, we went out and uh, well, when I say we, it was assistants running around, but uh, bought every copy of Elmore books available in near the studio. Um, so, and we handed them out, and people started reading them, and um, that was incredibly helpful. And Fred, tell your Elmore story. My Elmore story? Yeah, but my conversation with Elmore. Well, we had the honor and the fun of of meeting and hanging out with Elmore on a few occasions. And on one trip, I was, I, and, and when I'd started, when I sat down to write my first scenes for the show, I went back through Elmore, I read a lot of Elmore, and I read a lot of um, all the material that had been written on those characters up to that point to, to sort of ramp myself into it. And I was telling Elmore this when I was talking to him, and he said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, you know, every time I start a book, I go, uh, I go back and, and, and read some of, uh, some couple of my other ones, he said, to try to get that voice back in my head. <laughs> and I realized it was, a, it was a, a thing for Elmore as well. Were there rules where, I mean, you don't want to have a gunfight every episode, um, although there was at least a threat of a gunfight every episode. But, I mean, do you... As well, a writer, yeah. it was a showdown. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, John Landgraf at FX said that he wanted a show in the first season. Our marching orders, we wanted a showdown in every episode, but it didn't necessarily have to be Raylan shooting someone. It right. could be some other kind of conflict. We always talked about there was a scene at the end of I think the fifth episode in season two when Raylan is trying to help little Loretta McCready, and he gives her a cell phone so that she can call him if she ever needs help. And getting her to agree to take the phone was the showdown. Working with, uh, you know, going up against a surly teenager was like one of the most difficult <laughs> battles for, for Raylan. But we, you know, listen, Elmore had rules. Never make it about more than the amount of money that can fit in a suitcase. And we break that occasionally. In the final episode, it's two big duffel bags, and that became part of the story. And that became part of the problem. You know, they were hauling around too much weight. You know, they couldn't move fast. Um, um, yeah, the he, you know, I'm trying to think of any other sort of rules. Um, we did sort of say in the second seats, and let's not ra- have Raylan kill so many people, and um, it's getting to be problematic. <laughs> so, um, because you see him as a straight-up hero, right? I mean, and you, you'd be, if he kills too many people, that's harder to believe. Yeah, I... I not a perfectly straight up here, but he certainly he certainly sees himself that that way, and um, doesn't understand to a degree what all the fuss is about. Um, but that goes back to the, the pilot when Matt Craven's character says, "You realize it's you know it's not a hundred years ago. You can't just do what you're doing." But he, um, yeah, to me, Raylan was a good guy. He was a white hat. You know, he was mostly good who did some bad things. And Boyd, in reality, as much as people loved him, he was a bad guy. I have to, I, every panel I do, I have to say, no, Boyd was a bad guy. He killed Dewey Crow. Yeah. But that gray where you've got to convince them that he was a bad guy, that means you did your job, right? Because you left enough gray there. Yeah, and listen, Elmore had various gradations of bad guys. There were the bad guys who you just couldn't wait to see killed because they were so horrible. And there are other ones that's like, eh, you know, I want to see him make it to the end of the book and maybe another book, you know. But, uh, and we felt Boyd was one of those. When did you know it was over? That this was going to be the last season, wow. et cetera? How does that come down? What, what's the backstory there? Nick's demands were just so onerous <laughs> that it was... Now, it was a conversation at the end of season four, and FX and Sony were wondering if we could do what we could do in season five, is let's sh- shoot 20 or 22 episodes, divide that into two shorter seasons, and then finish up with a final run of 13. And we kind of you know, realized that, you know, it would have killed the writer's room. We would have gone essentially nonstop for two years, and that would have been just a brutality. We just wouldn't have had a life in it. And But more important than that... So you really, were lazy. We were lazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, because, you know, other shows, I mean, they do 22 every year, and it's just like, oh, my God. And then they're the British who are like, oh, we're doing six. And it's like, <laughs> you know. But, um... But really, it was more of a story. Well, they did. At the end of season three, I remember they approached us and said, yeah. At the end of season three, they did say, listen, four, five, and six at this point seem like a no-brainer. 
and we took that to heart. Like it seemed like when we were thinking about those last three, we really kind of tried to look ahead as much as possible and try to figure it out towards that end. And thinking about the last two at that point, we also couldn't come up with a good midpoint to do 22. It was like, if we do 22 and split up, what's our big 11 episode moment? Cause we had that kind of last season in yeah. mind to some extent. Yeah. We talked about it. It's like, what can we, we'd almost have to send Boyd to the moon for 10 episodes. Cause the, cause the real hard part was just keeping Boyd and Raylan at all believable. Why doesn't he just shoot him? You know, why doesn't he finally arrest him? You know, so it was it was parceling that out was really it felt like we were going to run out of story and that six seemed right. Well, but that's a whole different problem than I mean, that's a luxury as as opposed to we could be canceled tomorrow. Yes. And did it ever feel like that? Despite the fact that you didn't have. Huge numbers. You you're you're very, very delicate in how you said but, that. But you didn't, very feel diplomatic. Like, you didn't feel like you were going to be canceled either. You know, I, I never read the ratings. I thought we were a huge hit until you just said that. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Fuck. That's all right. A lot of well, people we, like to scram. <laughs> no, we, did, we didn't know at the end we, of season one. No, we, we didn't know until we were... Fred and I were working. We went over to help the launch of Falling Skies. Because uh, I knew the DreamWorks guys, and it seemed like a fun thing. So Fred and I were working on that when we got the call that there was going to be a season two. And they, they they made us a cake, or they bought us a cake, <laughs> the Falling Skies. So that was a big day. After that, I think we felt that watching the numbers, okay, we're not going off a cliff. We're kind of going the same. If that was good enough for another season, then it's probably good to keep going. And Dave's right. Season end of three, it's like we're going to get to do six. And... Um, that's huge to be able to call your own ending. Um, and the fact that they wanted more was even was really delightful. You know, they weren't saying, yeah, no, you know what? Five's enough. You know, they said, no, you know, we'd like more. So but we just felt that six was six was right. But that's got to be huge day to day. Right. Because you're not doing things hoping if we do this, more people will watch. Or if we do this, they won't cancel us. I mean, that's got to be a real luxury, right? Oh, yeah. Not just we think we know when the ending is, but the day-to-day writing. Yeah, it is big. You know, we would, it was funny. We'd get the ratings um, for during the final season, and, it's, you know, this is good and this is bad. It's like, it doesn't matter. They're not going to pull the plug now, you know. We were, we're just going on getting the numbers we always got, and... Uh, you know, and at that point, when you know you're getting the numbers you always got, then you're getting the viewers you've always had, and they like the show. So let's try and do the show that they're going to really enjoy. Did it never occur to you to tell the actors this? <laughs> <laughs> we were sweating it out every year. And that was the fun part. <laughs> because at the same time, any of you could have been killed at any moment. Well, that's it. Yeah, except me. I mean, no, wait a second. I almost got you. <laughs> No, I, they, I got they, you yeah, the they did. But uh, Graham actually called me into his office and said, you know, we're going to shoot you, but you're not going to die, okay? Because he knew what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> but you had friends that, that died on the show. Um, I think we killed everybody in Hollywood. Just like, <laughs> that's why they ended the show. We didn't have anybody left to shoot. <laughs> we had, uh, when we got Mary Steenburgen to agree to be on the show, which was a great kick, and she agreed to come on and just do the last couple episodes in season five, and then we said, you'll be in most of season six. And we said, we're not going to tell you one. And Fred had a conversation. And what the hell did that go, Fred? We were, the, we were the, Mary and Ted were at the rap party, and I, I told her, listen, next season, I said, I know we've had great fun with you, but next season we're going we were, we're to have you kill somebody at point-blank range. I said, I just think we have to do that, you know, for the character. And um, she was excited about it, and I told Graham, I made Mary a promise. She's going to get to kill somebody at point-blank range. And we've finally she made that too. work. She was, was that in your episode? Yeah. Yeah, sea yeah. bass. You're welcome. Yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> You want to say anything about that? Uh, no, just, you know, to, she was very, when it finally happened, the purse thing was what we kind of came up with for the first initial shot. And she was very excited about getting to shoot someone through a purse, as I think anybody would be, frankly. Um, and then we made sure that after she wounded him, she got to come up point blank and get her head shot. And then I was like, I don't want to hear another word for you for the rest of the series. <laughs> and, then, and then John got to... Uh, director exit scene which you know it's i gotta say it's one of those there's been a few scenes in justified but that's one fred and i saw that in the editing room 
another one was uh, Mags Margot Martindale when she poisoned Walt McCready in the first episode, first episode of season two. Um, that uh, Adam Arkin uh, directed that, and he dragged Fred and me and Sarah up to the editing room to watch. He said, I got to show you something. And we went, oh, my God, we've got a season. Uh, but when John did the end of uh, Catherine and the end of poor Mikey, sorry, Michael, um, <laughs> Fred and I looked at each other and it was like, am I crazy? Is that like the best thing? I've, you know, that's, and the only thing better than that now is Mad Max Fury Road. But anyway. <laughs> Which cost a lot less than Justified. <laughs> Two hundred million, but but I, I've known Mary for a long time, and uh, she's a wonderful actress, and it was really fun to have her. And she came up to me <clears throat> when we were getting ready to do the scene, and she said, "You know, I've never died in a movie." And I said, "Well, we're going to kill you really well, <laughs> so you may have saved it for the last <laughs> last second there." And and by the way, in terms of tonal stuff and, and the writing there, I mean, first of all, I just thought it was so incredible what they came up with uh, from Michael. Mikey, uh, because he was such a, you know, he's there, but he's not anybody. And, and when the turn started, it was just, you know, so surprising. And uh, again, this is what, what I'm talking about, about tone. And, and that's also why it's hard to do 22 of these, because they're really hand-tailored in terms of the writing, in my opinion. And uh, there was a moment in that where, where it, it felt like it could be funny because, you know, you got the cockroach there who's never going to die, Right. Win Duffy. Win Duffy, you know, is the only thing that's going to be here after everything isn't. (laughs) And, you know, and there there were moments there where you couldn't tell where it was going to go. And there was also one moment, and I remember telling Mary this in terms of performance, when she's talking about code, and I said, I want this to be a stone-cold killer. You know, this is not teasing. This is just letting it go. Because there's also the motivation for Michael to hear her code and then intervene uh, and, and again, it's, it's a little surprising, and it's a very subtle shift, but it's a very powerful thing. And I think that's, at, at its essence, some of the best drama in it. And then what happened was, you know, it was fun. But even during the shooting, I said to, uh, to Jerry, Jerry Burns, I said, the key, I think, for me in the sequence is your reactions, because it allows this really violent scene to have a kind of counterpoint, you know, which is this character and, and, and it's a very interesting balance, and that's what I mean by tonal, tonal poems. We could really do a highlight reel of just Jerry Burns reacting to oh, horrible yeah. violence. Graham, you've been a passing reference to Mags, and they almost gave you a standing ovation just for saying her name. Here, here is the thing. Uh, Fred and Dave and a group of us went down to Harlan to show the final episode, and Fred and I have been afraid to go back to Harlan since we killed off Mags. Um, <laughs> They loved her down there. Uh, yeah. I mean, did you almost villain-wise peak too soon with Mags? Well, you know, it's it was maybe. I mean, we didn't uh, listen. I I happen to love Neil McDonough's quarrels, um, and uh, I loved mixing it up in the fourth season and going for a mystery. and And I think what? Nikki Augustine, Mike O'Malley, mm-hmm. stepped in. It was a really because he had a couple of great scenes and. And, and Rappaport, you know, uh, some people weren't in love with season five, but uh, I ignore them. And, um, you know, so it's all a mixed bag. We never, I'll tell you this, we never tried to do that again. We felt that, okay, we're never going to have a criminal matriarch like that. We'll have, you know, women in crime, but we're never going to do that again. Um, and uh, the hardest decision was that we would, we would have her die. And the feeling was that if she came back, we didn't know what real estate we would have to give up to her and where we could go further in that story. And it would have been a, that would have been a tragedy, is bring that character back and not really have her do anything. The decision to essentially keep everyone alive. I mean, is that the hardest part of the last season? Or is that you knew that was the way it was headed three seasons ago? Well, it's been a topic of discussion since season one, is which one of these guys would end up alive. And I know my gut instinct from early on was that in some way, for my own sentimental reasons anyway, I wanted to see both these guys right off into their own respective sunsets. But both everything was up for grabs. Till what point? Well, the final call was Graham's, you know. Until the last minute, really. Well, I mean, we talked about it a lot. It was really, I mean... 
you know, Nick alluded to this. I mean, Tim had a huge amount of input on this show. Uh, he was a producer, an executive producer by the end, and, um, you know, much to our chagrin at t- sometimes, I'll be honest, but a lot of time, because it's just, you know, God, it's another round of notes that we have to deal with, but he came up with a lot of brilliant stuff, and we could go through it episode by episode, line by line, um, but it really came down to, you know, he's, look, who's on the who's on the poster there, you know, it's Tim, his name's above the title, and uh, he is Raylan, and so... The decision about to keep them all alive was sort of individual and also sort of a group thing. One, individually, we we, just, we would talk about killing off Raylan, usually after Tim gave us notes. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I know, way, you know, I know. And uh, slow pitch. And then um, the we honestly never we talked about Ava dying, but that just felt kind of. That's not that's not Elmore Leonard. Um, the women usually get away, and sometimes with the money. So the question became Boyd, and we felt that Boyd, just killing Dewey alone, had done stuff that warranted him dying. But then if Raylan did that, then what was the point of the entire series <laughs> that he had learned nothing? He had grown not, not a bit. And we also felt that him having a kid had changed him. That had changed him a little bit. And um, so we felt that even though he was, pun intended, justified, um, he wouldn't do it. And so it was like, oh, and I guess Boyd lives too. And it weirdly ended up being unexpected because I think everybody thought somebody in a show that had gotten rid of so many people that somebody was going to die. And it ended up playing as this kind of surprise and I didn't realize this until after it had aired, and we watched it down in Harlan. And I, I never watched Sons of Anarchy, and spoiler alert, cover your ears if you plan on watching it. But apparently, like by the end, everybody's kind of dead, and people came up to us after the screening, and we're like, I'm so glad you didn't do that. I, they were so mad at the show for taking away these people they had come to kind of love. And I think our finale may have been received in the manner that it was because people got to see their these characters stay alive and stay out there in the world, which not only felt true to Elmore, but it just made people happy, which was something I don't know if we'd ever really talked about in the room or kind of had dawned on us until... Well, we talked about it in terms of the tone, that we're not a downer show, right. you know? We didn't have bleak, horrible... I mean, no, there was some hard stuff and, <laughs> and all of that. Okay. Anyway... <laughs> No, I mean, you know, like the end of the end of season four when Raylan tells Winona that Arlo shot a guy in a, a, an officer in a, in a hat because he was afraid he was going to hurt Boyd. I mean, that was a pretty emotional yeah. moment. And we had moments like that. But for the most part, it, as bad as it'd be bittersweet, there's just something. And it's like, man, if they if we killed them off, that's that's just sad. And we're not a sad show. We, we you know, hopefully we're a fun show. But there is some fear going into that that you're going to screw up the ending and that's what people wind up remembering right yes i mean i I was on a panel yesterday about the final finale and you know one of the things that i I, we we discussed is as much as you want to stick the landing and have a memorable ending and people say this is a great ending for the series really you're more afraid of it going the other way so then you have an ending where it kind of tarnishes the memory of the series um, I think people have let go of the Seinfeld ending by now. But to a degree, you mention it and go, uh, uh, you know. And, uh, I mean, at the last episode of David Letterman, there was two in the top ten lists. Julie Louise Dreyfus came out and Seinfeld came out, and there were jokes about the Seinfeld ending. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to fall into that category more than anything. No, I mean, I love Seinfeld. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Just not the ending. Yeah, yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, how tight was this cast? In, in, well, in they the, were all tight with each other. I wasn't really close to any of them. That makes sense. <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> no, I mean, it, you spend a lot of time over a lot of years together. Well, the funny thing about the cast is, I mean, you know, the Marshalls, we, we kind of, uh, from the pilot on, Tim and Eric and I really bonded, and, and, and we had a lot of fun. But a lot of the other guys I knew from before anyway. I'd, I'd worked with Joel before. 
I hadn't worked with Tim, but he'd been on Deadwood, and all of my friends were on Deadwood. I don't know why I wasn't. But <laughs> I know. I think I was doing Rodney then. But, uh, and, he, and Walton, we had mutual friends. So, you know, we, we did sort of have this feeling that we kind of all knew each other already. So. And ultimately, I mean, I guess you said there was the extra interaction with the writers. I mean, the, it winds up, though, I guess... I don't know, it, it feels more like for when we were watching that, that clip reel, um, they're not all Raylan laughs. They're not all, I mean, you really see what an ensemble it is when you're watching something like that. But, well, also, I mean, and that's got to be good as an actor to be part of something like that. Yeah, I mean, everybody was sort of, uh, we all enjoyed each other, and, you know, we, we, we liked cracking jokes with each other, and, you know, it was great. It, really, I, I, there wasn't a, I didn't dislike anybody in the show except for Graham. <laughs> well, there's also one thing, you know, that Graham and the writers did so well is they created all these other characters. And that's, you know, one of the things that makes a series work or not work, setting them up and really making them great and getting good actors. So it wasn't just the core group. You know, the core group set a tone and people knew what the show was and then they came in. And I think that's part of what, from my pers- perspective, where the show excelled. Those those secondary characters were very, very memorable. Obviously, Margot, you know, you know, it was... It was a high point for sure, but there were a lot of them, a lot of really good characters, and some of them, you know, had small arcs like you know Danny, and you know, and and they were often very funny, you know, and and they added to the entertainment of it. And the same time, you were anticipating a twist, and that's again part of the form. Maybe it starts with Elmore, but I think it was executed very well, which is you weren't sure where it was going to go, and it's very difficult today to do a drama where you can't anticipate where something is going to end. And I think also we were, you know, every, all the great guest stars and the people that came on the show, invariably they were like, we love the show, we're so yep. glad to be here, they, you know, and the writing attracted them. And so the, by setting the tone, we were able to attract people who got the tone and who fit right in. And part of the fun of doing the series was, and part of the fun, I think, of series television is being able to, to you, you write a character for one episode and you like the cat, the actor so much, you decide to bring them back and you find a way to use them again and they end up developing a storyline of their own. I mean, there's just a sense there's an organic evolution of a series as you're, as you're going along that's, that's, there's nothing else like that that I can think of. But Not movies, you kill, certainly. You kill Choo Choo. You killed Choo Choo. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then as it went on, it got easier and easier. I became amazed by the people who were willing to come and play on our show for a couple of episodes. And as the Shenna show went on and had this reputation for being something where an actor could go and have a lot of fun, and we were never going to put exposition in your mouth, and you were going to get to do crazy shit, it was amazing, the people who came out of the woodwork, and it made our jobs a lot easier, because those people are so good. I, mean, I don't know if it's because we mentioned Seinfeld, but I was, it, it just made me think that, I mean, there's not a concept to this show like, you know, part of the population all die at a given moment, and now you're dealing with the consequences of that. There's not a part of this show that aliens have arrived. Um, I pitched that. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the setting seems to be that thing. In other words, Kentucky, it, it's a show about nothing except maybe the setting, right? Can I speak I mean, to is, that? Yeah, Fred, you is speak. That, well, we, we season when we all came in, we weren't really sure. I mean, now looking back, it seems obvious, but we weren't sure initially uh, what the series was going to be. I mean, it felt like it could easily have been more of a more of a of a procedural, with um, with just a very. And I think you described it as potentially a procedural with a really cool hero, and that was one way to go. And about part way into the season, we real and everyone in the writers' room were huge fans of The Sopranos and The Wire and all these great, rich, serialized shows. It started to dawn on us that uh, this was a world, Harlan, Eastern Kentucky, this, this world, these people, was, we hadn't seen that in television before. It's a world that was unexplored and potentially rich in mythology and history and just, and that we should start mining that. And so that's, that's why about halfway through season one, you see that stuff start to kick in. And then really we dug deep in season two out of a trip to Harlan, as you talked about, and... I mean, you'd go down there and send the writers there. Yeah, we a group of us went down between seasons one and two, and then every I think every year mm-hmm. after that, every and it would year. it would vary. Sometimes it was just a couple people, um, 
but uh, yeah, they and they would always come back with stories. And the people of Eastern Kentucky and the, and the Marshal Service up in Lexington and Nick would go visit the Marshals every year. Um, yeah, Charlie on the set. And we had also Charlie Almanza, our technical advisor, who was in the final episode when Raylan is in Miami. And we've got David Keckner back in. And when Keckner exits the scene, he walks by another marshal sitting on the desk, and that was Charlie Almanza. Uh, but he gave us a lot of stories. Um, so, yeah, it was – Fred's right. We just started to mine, mine the terrain. I don't know if this room is set up for this. I guess it is. Is there Are there microphones? I'm not sure how it works. But I, I feel like I'm not yeah. asking very specific things because I'm just not that guy. I mean – that, that Shout it out! So if you've got, show. so if you've got, yeah, never seen it. Uh, <laughs> Great clip reel, that man. Uh, no, in, in all seriousness, if you've got those kind of questions, I think this is the time. Yeah. because because it's the finale. Yeah, I mean, I've got, can you talk about that last line of the series? Because it seemed like. The one that a lot of people couldn't understand and had to watch it three times, apparently. I didn't know this. I didn't, have, I didn't know that either. I yeah. thought it was a great... I thought it was a very clear line, and I was very upset. Yeah, I thought it was a great final line. Um, that, you know, it was... That, that last run of the, of the episode, I wrote very quickly, and, it, and it, uh, it just kind of flowed. But there was a lot of different input into it, and one of the things was... Um, I think it was even, I can't remember who suggested that we have this final scene between Raylan and Boyd. And it was Walton who came up with a different way of getting to it, but he said something about Doug Cole together. And I just went, yeah, that's got to go in. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting scene. It's um, um, because there's one way to read it, which is that Raylan is lying to him every second of the scene because Raylan wants, wants Boyd to believe that Ava is, in fact, dead. So all his camaraderie and friendship and everything is all just a sham because he's just trying to convince Boyd that she's dead. And I think that's true. But I also think that there's another part of Raylan that does acknowledge that, you know, they dug coal together. So. Question all the way in the back. Uh, along those lines of digging coal together, that's the last line of the short story. Right. And it was the, la- it was, it was the original last line. Well, it's in the, um, it's in the pilot. No, so um, Sarah Timberman and her, and her producing partner, um, Carl Beverly, had a deal at Sony, and Sarah had been at Universal when they did Karen Sisko, and there was just an interest in Elmore, and Carl was reading the book When the Women Come Out to Dance, and he read that story, showed it to Sarah. She said, that would be a great piece. Um, for that would be a great you know, um, thing to option for a series. They talked to Michael Dinner. Then they were looking for a writer, and when they couldn't get Scott Frank, they called me. No, um, and I had a deal at Sony, so uh, that's how that's how it started. But yeah, the reason we we put that line at the very end of the sh- the series was because it was th- at the end of the pilot. <clears throat> Let's go right in the front here. Could you describe the process for casting uh, your actors? You had an extraordinarily rich group of people through the series that are just, just beyond normal television. What was different about the casting process? Well, it started in, you know, he's tired of hearing this, but when I was reading the short story, <laughs> when I was reading the, uh, the novella and I came across the character of Art Mullen, I said, that, that's, that, that'd be Nick Searcy. And, uh, because I had been emailing you for 15 years going, I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> Nick and I had done uh, Earth to the Moon together. And then uh, I created the part of Tim Gutterson for Jacob Pitts because I worked with him on, um, on uh, the Pacific. And then Tim um, wasn't available at first. Or he wasn't available. He was doing a movie. So we went down some other avenues that, um, you know, it's in, in Hollywood. You get in that time and it's that pressure and it's January and you're trying to cast. And it's like you talk to yourself. <laughs> no, this could be a comeback thing for Abe Vigoda. This really could. I think, I think that somehow, no, really, no, no, I know what's weird, but, you know. And it was finally Landgraf who just said, why don't we just wait for all of him? And uh, that was, you know. That gave us six years, and then, and it was their idea to cast Walton as Boyd, and um, we had to talk him into it. But it was only, you know, it was kind of like, come on, Walton, it's, you're just going to be in the pilot. You're going to be dead. So you know, it's no big, big. And he said, ah, oh, help out FX. They were good to me on the Shield, and that, of course, went a little differently. Um, Erica was cast off of uh, just a, you know, we had 
Cammy Patton and Crystal Cargi were just fantastic um, casting directors, and they just had a you know a deep well of knowledge of all the people who are out there, um, and they also found people, Joelle. And people who look right for Harlan. Yeah, people who looked right for Harlan. It didn't have to be a regular Hollywood beauty show, you know. As we were coming to the end, as we were coming to the end of the series, Cammy was actually saying, "I've really run out of people <laughs> for your show. I, I really don't know who else to bring in." Go ahead, right in the front. Yeah, there's that famous uh, story from Breaking Bad about Aaron Paul initially not being slaughtered to make it out of the first season, and then they saw what they had and really built on that. And I'm wondering what characters have justified you might have had written, but then when. So you had some on paper, but when you saw him on screen, you said, we need to find more time for this person. Well, I mean, Jerry Burns, when Duffy was a, that guy died on paper like four times. <laughs> and we were like, there's no chance. Dewey Crow was another who had died on paper at least once or twice. And then there were people like Abby Miller who played Ellen May, which was just like hooker number one in an episode of mine. And then we kind of were watching the, you know, watching the cuts and we're like, oh my God, she's really good and ended up being a huge part of our fourth season i mean johnny kowalski who played mikey he was just body he was just a bodyguard driver guy and then all of a sudden years later i mean there are a lot of those kinds of stories about actors i, I in the hired show. him and i killed him That's right. <laughs> yeah our basic rule in justified is if you didn't see the guy actually zipped up in a body bag then we can bring him back uh let's go with you right there in the bluish So Tim's not here, right? So that was our idea. Yep. Anyway, yeah. thanks. Moving on. <laughs> Fred and I wrote that episode, and we had, I think our original solution was that Raylan just pulls early, that they're doing the countdown, and Raylan just... That's what you wrote just, in the first draft, did, yeah. He was counting down, and Raylan just grabbed it three, you know, grabbed it three and sh- sh- shot him. Which is not bad. It's not bad. But Tim had this idea... And he actually worked out with a friend at his kitchen table. He got a towel. Over a week, over a weekend. Yeah. Over a weekend, put a banana down and, yeah. and found. What they found out on the set is that they, it's like the old trick of, you know, pulling out the tablecloth and everything staying put. The gun wouldn't move. You'd pull it and the gun would just stay where it was. It weighed too much. So they had to Velcro it to the tablecloth to get it to come to him. But, uh, yeah. But that, that's the thing where, you know, someone comes up with a note or an idea and we all look at each other and go, that's awesome. Yeah. Let's do that. So it one really of my, was, one it of really my favorite showdowns, too. Yeah. Right in the front. Since so many good characters did not die, is there any chance there will be a movie? <laughs> we'll see how the Entourage movie does this weekend, and then we'll uh, and then we'll let you know. In all seriousness, things are less definitive than they've ever been, right? I mean, in, in this business, because there is movies and Netflix and all these different ways that people can now revive things. Yeah, and, Do you and think some, about of those, that? some of those are good. You know? <laughs> but, I mean, some honestly just haven't worked. And, um, you know, I mean, for one Better Call Saul, there are 20 things that just didn't work. And so as much as art in Florida solving crimes and riding around on his boat calling, called Raylan, you know, because like, like, like the namesake, this boat's a pain in the ass, but he solves crimes. That was actually... That's not, that's not mine. There was a whole series of these pitched online. Uh, all I do is win for Win Duffy and then stuff. For, for, you know, all of that, it's just... Uh, you know, boy, it, that's that's tough. And in terms of, you know, it, it, Dave, I, Dave summed it up. You know, if boy, there really has to be an appetite. You know, and everyone has to be wanted, want to do it. You know, there, there was a line I used in uh, Fried Green Tomatoes: "Never say never again." Yeah, <laughs> my More demands won't change, though. <laughs> there was a woman all the way in the back that's tried a couple times. There you are. Yeah. 
can't I can't even remember where that who who wrote that line or if that was Walton. Um, I mean, Walton would give us notes too, and a lot of it was just simple line changes to sort of void it up a little bit if we if he felt we were missing it. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he contributed a lot. They, you know, listen, this is the thing: they were all really fun characters to write, uh, all of them, and uh, some you could go a little crazy on, and uh, we'd have to, you know pull each other back from the from the precipice of getting just too flowery with Boyd, you know. But, oh, boy, it was a joy. Can I ask you a question, Graham? Yes. How would you sum up what the show's about? I think it's about six seasons. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's summed up in that, that, that main title theme song that we just stumbled upon, you know, uh, trying, trying to go home. He, he doesn't want to go home. And but he's got to, and he's got to face his past and and deal with it somehow. And it is Raylan's story. I think everyone has their own story, and I think that you know it's not it's not a simple one thing. I think the other thing is that uh, the whole series was ultimately about saving Ava Crowder. Yeah. Which is probably not the conclusion that a lot of people came to, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know. I, I think that that she says when she see she says in their first scene together in the pilot when I saw you at the door I knew everything was going to be okay, and so that was the promise. And he also says to her on the bridge at the end of season five she says I'm scared and he says you'll be fine. And you have her back at the door at the last yeah. episode, mm-hmm. yeah, which is not coincidence. No, it's not coincidence. <laughs> uh, we'll th- probably have one or two more. Go ahead, right in the second row there. Oh, I just need to know if Constable Bob made it <laughs> again. <laughs> Well, Dave's Dave. There were there were a couple things where we were like cold sweating it, like oh shit, we forgot to say whether he was alive or dead. Well, um, yes, he makes it, and uh, Bob is Bob is doing fine. What was his pitch for a show? Uh, oh, there was a picture of him with with Joel when. He, one of my favorite scenes is when he, he captures her by the car when she's come down the mountain and he's leading her away and he says, and if you try to seduce me, I just know it's been tried. <laughs> but, but the great thing about Patton, just amazing, is that he just played it dead straight. You know, he was Bob. And they got a picture of uh, Joel doing a glamour shot on the hood of the car with Patton standing there and his pitch for the show was hottie in the pudge. <laughs> Yeah, that's an Elmore thing. That was a thing in the in the Elmore books that Raylan loved ice cream, and so we always would try and return to that. Yeah, we had an ice cream truck behind them, and <laughs> remember when we were in rehearsal? No, no, it was in post. And they put in, like, this loud sort of Cuban uh, cantina song going on. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, we just were going to say that they're in Miami. We don't need to have <laughs> Cuban music playing. <laughs> we were so mean to the poor, uh, poor Polivka yeah. that day. Um, actually, yeah, the ice cream played a big part in, uh, in the early stories of Raylan. He lets uh, um, Harry Arno get away from him for the second time because he goes to get an ice cream cone. And Harry said, and he says, Raylan says, you're not going to try and run away from me, right? And he says, oh, of course not, and he does. And, uh, Raylan was a bit more of a, sh- uh, you know, he wasn't the best marshal in, the, in, the, in, uh, in, in Elmore's early stories with him. All right, one more. Oh, I see you over there. You know, uh, we we made the decision late, and we had to remove it in post. No, no, he um, he told me he said I don't have the mustache right now. Do you want me to grow it? It takes about you know what was it three weeks or something like that to get the full to get the full thing, which he has back now. And um, we we didn't talk about it that long. We just basically said let's go with it. Let's just go with it. It'll be different. Yeah. 
it would be less. You know, on the other hand, it could be cool if it's the avuncular, warm Sam Elliott mustache and he's doing horrible things. But there was something about that. There was, his face looked longer and somehow meaner. And who's got what next? We'll just end on that. I mean, what's who's doing what? I mean, each of you. So I'm doing a uh, Hulu miniseries, eleven twenty two sixty three, based on the yeah. Steve. And it's very. I play like a. I'm the boss of the main character, and every once in a while, he comes in my office, and I go, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> Uh, I'm working on a few things. I, I generally don't talk about them too much because I feel like in Hollywood nothing is real until the cameras are rolling. Um, but uh, yeah, I've got my deal at Sony runs another year, so you know the wolf is not yet at the door. I'm uh, doing a movie, and I just cast the role, and hopefully I'll be shooting in November. Yeah, I mean Graham's <laughs> Graham's statement about cameras rolling, notwithstanding. Uh, writing a pilot for Cinemax and have signed on to run uh, FX just greenlit a, a pilot by John Singleton that's 1981 Los Angeles crack cocaine starting to come into the country so I've signed on to kind of help shepherd that show because nobody he has not worked in television so I'm going to try to see if we can replicate some of that FX magic and uh, I just had a, a pilot project blow up so I'm uh, <laughs> 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 I'm sending a daughter off to college and uh, writing a spec pilot you want the final word or I mean, hey, you know, the great thing, uh, you know, if I let my mind wander back <laughs> at the risk of being sentimental, uh, I do come back. You know, we dug coal together. Oh. Justified. Now leaving Nerdist.com.